It's my privilege to welcome each of you to this, our first session in this first module in which I will be giving lectures in pastoral theology. Conscious that these lectures are being captured on video as well as audio format in anticipation of their wider usefulness, I want to extend a welcome to those of you who are taking advantage of that wider usefulness and are joining these brethren by means of the video or audio reproduction. As most of you do know, it was my responsibility and privilege to give these lectures in pastoral theology for 20 years when Trinity Baptist Church had as one of its ministries the Trinity Ministerial Academy. The tape recordings of those lectures have found their way into many hands since the closing of the academy, and as a result of that, there has been a growing number of discerning men who have urged me quite strongly to make the effort to put these lectures into a more usable and permanent form. This present module is our first concrete effort to respond to this pressure. It's my desire that, God willing, I will live long enough and have a structure of responsibility compatible to eventually placing these lectures in their most permanent form in book structure. As we begin this first session, let's seek the blessing of God upon our time together, that blessing without which all of our efforts to do any good now or in the future will be futile. So let's pray and ask God's help. Our Father, we remember the words of our Lord Jesus, who said, without me, you can do nothing. And we confess we are slow to unlearn the ways of creature confidence, and we would therefore pause to embrace from the heart our desire to think and to speak and to listen as men who are deeply conscious of our present and utter dependence upon your grace and upon the ministry of your Holy Spirit. And so we look to you in the confidence of the promise of our Lord Jesus, being yes and amen in him, that if we who are evil know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more shall you, our Heavenly Father, Give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. And we therefore ask for your Spirit's enablement in every facet of our mutual endeavor. Come and assist us, we pray, to the praise of your grace. We ask through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Now we have announced, and you brethren have gathered, uh, to spend our time together in this first module wrestling with this issue of what I have chosen to call the call of the man of God to the pastoral office. Often it is taken up under the title of a call to preach or a call to the ministry, but as I will subsequently explain, I have chosen this way to designate our subject for what I believe are good, wise, and essentially biblical reasons. And in the second hour, in the uh, taking up of the subject proper, I will address why I have chosen that designation. However, as we come in this first hour, I want to give what I would call is a general introduction to the entire course of pastoral theology, since hopefully some of you will be attending these lectures in days to come in sequence, and hopefully their wider usefulness will find an avenue in that format as well. And as you will see, as you follow the lecture notes, your printed outlines, I have five units of thought in this opening and introductory lecture. First of all, I want to give an explanation of the course title. Most of you are aware of the various categories by which the theological disciplines are separated and described, and any list of those major categories will generally include the following. First of all, exegetical theology. 
This discipline is devoted to the issue of how to arrive at the precise God-intended meaning of the words of Scripture. It will often bring within its scope such things as canonics, what books are to be regarded as part of God's revelatory data, textual criticism, what is the purest text by which we may recognize the very words of God, the matter of philology, ascertaining the meaning of words, and then, of course, hermeneutics, which is the science of accurate interpretation. Since the words of God come to us in various linguistic forms, various genres of literature, they come to us in the structures of uh, grammar, uh, there is uh, a whole scope of concern that comes within the field of hermeneutics and hermeneutics itself under the larger heading of exegetical theology. And then often in seeking to identify the various theological categories, men will speak of biblical theology. And this discipline in its purest form is devoted to the history of special revelation. It seeks to grasp that which God is saying in each epoch of giving revelation to his people. Building upon and using the disciplines of exegetical theology and greatly contributing to it, biblical theology seeks to discover what God is saying at a given point in history, the history of redemption, and to show the organic development between that revelatory data and what precedes it. In his magisterial work on biblical theology, Gerhardus Voss defines it this way. It is that branch of exegetical theology which deals with the process of the self-revelation of God deposited in the Bible. The process of the self-revelation of God deposited in the Bible. Then there is the third category of the theological disciplines often designated as historical theology. This discipline is devoted to discovering what the church has understood the truth of God as deposited in the scriptures to be, as that truth has been articulated in the crucible often of controversy and of conflict. Often called the history of dogma or of Christian doctrine, William Cunningham's two-volume work on historical theology is a classic example of this discipline. One of the first encounters I had with historical theology that rattled my theological cage was Shedd's two-volume work on that subject. And then there is Burkhoff's standard work on historical theology and, of course, many other more contemporary writers. And then we come to that discipline of all theological disciplines, systematic theology, And its peculiar concern is to ascertain the total witness of Scripture on any given subject to which the Scripture bears witness. Professor Murray has defined systematic theology this way. It synthesizes the whole witness of Scripture on the various topics with which Scripture deals. It brings to its task all of the other theological disciplines, exegetical, biblical, and historical theology, and has often been called, and I believe rightly so, the queen of the theological disciplines. In a masterful essay by B.B. Warfield found in volume two of his shorter writings entitled The Indispensableness of Systematic Theology to the Preacher, Warfield writes as follows, Professor Flint of Edinburgh, in closing his opening lecture to his class a few years ago, took occasion to warn his students of what he spoke of as an imminent danger. This was a growing tendency to, quote, deem it of prime importance that they should enter their ministry accomplished preachers and only of secondary importance that they should be scholars, thinkers, and theologians. Professor Flint 
went on to say, It is not so, he is reported as saying, that great or even good preachers are formed. They form themselves before they form their style of preaching. Substance with them precedes appearance, instead of appearance being a substitute for substance. They learn to know the truth before they think of presenting it. They acquire a solid basis for the manifestation of their love of souls through a loving, comprehensive, absorbing study of the truth which saves souls. End quote. In these, and now this is what Warfield calls that quote I've just given you, in these winged words is outlined the case for the indispensableness of systematic theology for the preacher. It is summed up in the propositions that it is through the truth that souls are saved. That it is accordingly the prime business of the preacher to present this truth to men. And that it is consequently his fundamental duty to become himself possessed of that truth. To what end? That he may present it to men. And so save their souls. It would not be easy to overstate, of course, the importance to a preacher of those gifts and graces which qualify him to present this truth to men in a winning way. Of all, in a word, that goes to make him an accomplished preacher. But it is obviously even more important to him that he should have a clear apprehension and firm grasp of that truth which he is to commend to men by means of these gifts and graces. For this clear apprehension and firm grasp of the truth, its systematic study would seem certainly to be indispensable. And I love this final statement that I'm going to quote to you. And systematic theology is nothing other than the saving truth of God presented in systematic form. It is the saving truth of God presented in systematic form. And so there is and ought to be a passion to be theologians in this truest sense. Then from the matter of systematic theology, we come to that which in many ways, though not the queen of the theological disciplines, is the ultimate issue of those disciplines, pastoral theology, or what has often been called practical theology. And this discipline has as its concern the witness of Scripture to the actual work of shepherding the flock of God. In the other disciplines, the pastoral or shepherding elements are more or less latent, but in pastoral theology they are patent. These matters are more or less implicit in the other theological disciplines, but in the discipline of pastoral theology, they are explicit. And one of the great ends for the very scriptures that are in our hands is to make us pastoral theologians. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is also profitable for teaching to make us solid theologians for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. To what end? Not that the people of God generically may be perfect or complete, but that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly furnished unto every good work. And so in a very real sense, Paul is telling Timothy, your manual of pastoral theology is your Bible, Timothy. Your Bible is your manual to be an effective man of God, equipped by the Scriptures unto every good work. Then I've left you a record of uh, Morton Smith's outline of the various uh, theological disciplines, and he listed as number four in his, uh, it's really a syllabus, three volumes of systematic theology by uh, Professor Morton Smith, and he writes, Practical theology, or pastoral theology, has been defined as, quote, the science and art of the various functions of the Christian ministry for the preservation and propagation of the Christian religion at home and abroad. 
Schaff goes on to say, quote, It is the crowning consummation of sacred learning, to which all other departments look, and by which they become useful for the upbuilding of the kingdom of God in the world. And then Schaff goes on to divide the various branches, and you have that in the sheet before you. So as we come into this first unit of pastoral theology, I think it will be helpful for us to think of pastoral theology in its relationship to the other major theological disciplines and to have a sense that in coming to it, someone has taken the other disciplines and actually done a drawing and called it the face of the theological disciplines. And for the two eyes, uh, they have exegetical and uh, historical theology, and then they have biblical and theological, and then the nose, I forgot what it was, and then the mouth was practical or pastoral theology, all of the other disciplines completing the face of the theological disciplines. Now let me say something briefly in the second place about the nature of the course lectures. And the first thing that will be evident is that they will be topical as to their structure and to their form. Topical in structure and in form. One could conceivably work through the key passages on the work of the ministry and in that sense make a course that was thoroughly exegetical and expository, possibly even following the structure of biblical theology. However, it's my judgment that such a method would leave much to be desired in terms of comprehensiveness and practicality. Hopefully, though topical in form and structure, I trust that the major segments of the biblical witness with respect to the work of the ministry will be addressed, opened up, applied, and brought to bear upon whatever issue we are wrestling with at any given point in the course lectures. Not only are they, as to form and structure, topical, but they'll be permeated with quotations and with illustrations. Others have gone before me, others have gone before us in these things. And I hope to pass on much of that legacy, even as Charles Bridges has done in his classic work on the Christian ministry. I shall never forget the first time that book came into my hands and I felt I had stepped into a marvelous legacy of thinking from the past as he has many, many quotes from other men and includes them in the text of his book on the Christian ministry. As I've tried to rethink this whole thing, on the one hand, having just finished rereading the Sermon on the Mount and the fact that the multitudes were amazed at our Lord because he spoke as one having authority and not like their scribes constantly quoting Rabbi Ben so-and-so and Rabbi Ben so-and-so, I said, Lord, am I going to be like a scribe, quoting this one, quoting that one? Well, there's a fundamental difference. These are men whose minds were in constant touch with Scripture itself. And as they wrestled with the work of the ministry and what to say about that work of the ministry in the light of their commitment to the absolute authority of Scripture, they speak with insights and freshness that take us into our Bibles and don't become a barrier between us and our Bibles. That was the curse of the scribes and the Pharisees. The quotes of the rabbis became a barrier between the masses and their Bibles. I'm seeking to quote men whose insights will bring us into a greater affinity with and understanding of our Bibles. And so I will be parading a number of these men before you. I deliberately passed over the uh, next couple of quotes that you have in your possession from Thomas Murphy, who our brother Jim Garretson says really was giving us the distillation of Alexander's lectures on pastoral theology that he himself was privileged to hear as a student under Alexander. But at this point, I do want to quote Thomas Murphy with regard to the benefit of listening to and heeding some of the masters of the past. In dealing with the sources of materials for pastoral theology, Murphy comes to number four, and this is what he writes. Here's a source 
of insight into pastoral theology, it is the accumulated experience of other workers in the same general field which constitutes a vast storehouse from which the pastor can draw instruction in reference to all of his duties. Indeed, this experience, classified and framed in accordance with the teaching of the scriptures, is itself a system of pastoral theology. Men of sound and discerning minds, men full of the Spirit of Christ, men whose lives have been spent in the most unwearied activity have filled the office of the gospel ministry. They have given earnest attention to every department of their beloved calling. Whatever plans were likely to give success to their work, they have tried. It would probably be very difficult to conceive of any scriptural method of building up the kingdom of Christ on which they have not experimented. Long lives of thought, of wisdom, and of toil have been spent in striving to make the ministry more effective. What one man or generation of men has attained to has been made the starting point from which others have gone on in efforts to improve in doing the Lord's work. Even mistakes and failures in devising and executing methods have proved of great value in adding to the general store of knowledge on the subject. All this experience whether written or unwritten, has accumulated into an invaluable fund for the ministry. When it is sifted and tested by the sure precepts of God's inspiring and classified, it forms a system of rules by which the workmen in the ministry may safely be guided. No wise pastor will neglect this help of experience derived from all those who have gone before him. He can no more neglect it than the artist or the mechanic can neglect those rules which the skill of centuries has wrought out for his assistance. And you see, the genius of most of the older writers on pastoral theology, in contrast to men who teach pastoral theology today, is that often they were the bright lights in their denomination or ecclesiastical framework, who were known to be men of unusual godliness, of great power and effectiveness in the ministry, and often they would be drafted to teach in the seminaries. And then after years of teaching, they would embalm the fruit of all of that ministerial experience, the wrestling with the classification and organization of their insights into their lectures, and now put them into print, and we have the legacy, we have the cream of those men of God. I marvel at the cheek of men who've done nothing for 10 or 12 years but pursue degrees standing in the seminaries teaching pastoral theology, who've read a few books on it or many books on it, but know nothing of what it is to be in the trenches with sufficient pastoral experience to have been driven to these things existentially and have something of the flavor of the, of the, of the trenches upon the things that they seek to deliver. And so these lectures unashamedly will be permeated with quotations and with illustrations. Since none are so real illustrations as those that grow out of more than 50 years of trying to put my finger on this elusive thing called preaching. What is it? How does one do it? How does one do it effectively? More than 50 years I've been wrestling with that question and 45 years of pastoral experience uh, planted in one place with all of the various changes that come uh, in a lengthy pastorate. Uh, Many of the illustrations are going to come out of the crucible of my own experience. Not that I'm going to try to build principle upon that experience, but I hope you will not be offended when I illustrate it from that experience. And then thirdly, as to the lectures themselves, they are purposefully selective in their points of emphasis. I believe it would be utterly impossible to attempt to be totally exhaustive or completely comprehensive in treating this subject, to be either as deep or as broad as the subject requires. And therefore, I've sought to be selective in terms of three basic guidelines. Number one, I've tried to be sensitive to where the Bible places its primary emphases regarding the work 
of one serving in the pastoral office. And secondly, the observed lack in terms of existing materials addressing these issues. And then thirdly, the proven areas of needful instruction and exhortation. One of the benefits I remember when I first entered into that rich vein of, of many of the old writers whose works saw one edition, one edition only. And uh, in God's providence, I don't even remember the processes by which the stuff came into my hands. It was interesting to see that though they approached many aspects of the work of the ministry in a different way, such as what constitutes a call to the ministry, when one read long enough and broad enough, there were certain fundamental common denominators that kept coming through as these men observed, studied their Bibles, labored, sought to discern the ways of God in dealing with them. And so I have sought to be sensitive to those common denominators and to give them due emphasis in the course of the lectures. Well, having addressed those first two items by way of general introduction, we come in the third place to an explanation of the formative presuppositions in the course of these lectures. Now, a presupposition I know can simply be a prejudice or a personal preference imposed on a subject, and I'm very conscious that I'm competent to do that. However, it can also be a specific expression of a biblical reality rooted in sensitivity to the witness of the Word of God, which we are determined will act like a grid as we take up a subject and then attempt to present it to others. And I have had certain presuppositions in forming this course in pastoral theology. Five of them, and here they are. Number one. Number one presupposition is the primacy of preaching among the public duties of the ministry in terms of how much time is given to various facets of the work of the ministry I am presupposing the primacy of preaching among the public duties of the ministry. These are, as we shall see, both, there are, as we shall see, both private and public duties connected with the office of an elder set apart to labor in the word and in doctrine. But among the public ministries and responsibilities, such as counseling the distressed, giving oversight, calling on the sick, evangelism, none is so vital as that of the stated seasons of public preaching and teaching. And this for the simple reason that in the wisdom and purpose of God, the primary means ordained by God for the gathering out of his elect and the edification of his people is that of the preaching and teaching of the word of God. We all know Paul's conviction of this. God is ordained, 1 Corinthians 1.18, by the foolishness of the thing preached. The kerus, uh, the kerugma, is the thing preached. It has to do with content, but not merely with content. The kerugma is the thing preached, the thing delivered as a herald in the name of the king. And God is ordained by that means to bring his saving grace to men. And then, of course, the argument of Paul in Romans chapter 10. How shall they call upon him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And, of course, the perspective in the pastoral epistles, when we read them through, we pick up that emphasis again and again, where Paul views Timothy's functions which are as close to standing pastoral functions as anything we'll find in the scriptures again and again his teaching his preaching the subject the content the manner Paul emphasizes again and again and then of course the description of overseers in Hebrews thirteen seven. remember those that had the rule over you and how are they identified very specifically men who spoke unto you the word of God now, many things could be said about them, but the writer to the Hebrews underscores that among the public responsibilities, there is a primacy of speaking the word of God. 
It is the agreed testimony of Scripture and church history that the pulpit is, in the words of Spurgeon, the Thermopylae of Christendom, that mountain pass in which the Persians destroyed the Spartans and turned the tide. Spurgeon went on to say, quote, It is in the pulpit that the fight will be lost or won. To us ministers, the maintenance of our power in the pulpit should be our great concern, end quote. And I personally believe it's been the erosion of conviction on this point which in great measure has led to the shoddiness in preaching, the paralysis of godly ambition to excel in pulpit usefulness, the inadequacies of formal ministerial training precisely in this vital area. Broadus, whose work on homiletics and preaching, the preparation and delivery of sermons, to be more precise, the Dargan edition, he made this, I think, very accurate statement. The great appointed means of spreading the good tidings of salvation through Christ is preaching, words spoken, whether to the individual or to the assembly. And this, nothing can supersede. Printing has become a mighty agency for good and for evil, and Christians should employ it with the utmost diligence and in every possible way for the spread of truth. But printing can never take the place of the living word. Never take the place. When a man who is apt in teaching, whose soul is on fire with the truth which he trusts has saved him and hopes will save others, speaks to his fellow men face to face, eye to eye, and electric sympathies flash to and fro between him and his hearers till they lift each other up higher and higher into the intensest thought and the most impassioned emotion, higher and yet higher, till they are borne as on chariots of fire above the world. There is a power to move men, to influence character, life, destiny, such as no printed page can ever possess. And then he goes on to underscore the other dimensions of pastoral work that are important, but then he concludes by saying, it follows that preaching must always be a necessity, and good preaching a mighty power. In every age of Christianity, since John the Baptist drew crowds into the desert, there has been no great religious movement no restoration of scripture truth and reanimation of genuine piety without new power in preaching, both as cause and as effect. And to that, I believe people sensitive to church history are forced to say a hearty amen. And here again, I commend Murphy, pages 152 to 155. We didn't print out those quotes, but I just state that so that those of you that obtain uh, Thomas Murphy's work on pastoral theology can reference this, where he speaks of the primacy of preaching. And William Blakey, in his masterful work entitled For the Work of the Ministry, pages 26 to 36. And these older writers all emphasize in bringing together their thinking on pastoral theology, this presupposition as they address the subject, the primacy of preaching among the public duties of the ministry. But then the second presupposition is this. The vital place of biblical church order as the supportive context of effective preaching. The vital place of biblical church order as the supportive context of effective preaching. As this course unfolds, there will be lectures dealing with the worship of the church, the constitution of a biblically qualified eldership, church discipline, matters that all relate to the passion to see a well-ordered, biblically framed church as the context in which the primacy of preaching is carried on. Now, why such concerns? I answer because of the apostolic mentality as expressed in 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 and 15. 
Although the apostle had labored longer in Ephesus than in any other place in all three of his missionary journeys, though it was a well-established church, and from its base the gospel penetrated into all of Asia, as Paul, as Luke speaks of it in the book of Acts, yet he parts with his dear spiritual son and companion, Timothy, and has him remain there in Ephesus for many reasons. But central are the reasons expressed in 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. But abide in the things, I'm sorry, 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 and 15. These things I write unto you, hoping to come unto you shortly. But if I tarry long, that you may know how men ought to behave themselves in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. That saving truth, Timothy, in which you traffic in your preaching, you are to traffic in that truth in a context of truth. And it is the church ordered by the word of God in meticulous detail. You cannot read the pastoral epistles and take the latitudinarian attitude, well, as long as you have a gathering of people that in some way or another are attached to Christ, love Jesus, and want to please Him, why be concerned about really taking seriously the biblical standards for sexual roles in the church? Well, we must because Paul addresses that issue specifically. Why be concerned with whether or not the church gives itself to prayer? Because Paul says, I will first of all. And why be concerned with biblical standards for elders and deacons and the care of widows? Because the apostle, having labored in that place, realizes there was much more work to be done in seeing the church and churches at Ephesus framed and fashioned according to the mind of Christ, its great architect, as pillar and ground of the truth. He wants Timothy to carry on his preaching ministry of the truth in a context where the truth is fleshed out in biblical church order as the supportive context for that preaching. Let me put it this way. Under the blessing of God, when preaching is what it ought to be, and don't forget that opening phrase, under the blessing of God, When preaching is what it ought to be in content, form, and spiritual energy and comprehensiveness, a vigorous, healthy, biblically ordered church will become both its fruit and its validation. A biblically ordered, not necessarily a full church, but a biblically ordered church will become both its fruit and its validation. Paul could say, with all the problems at Corinth, I came preaching, and you are our epistle. Better yet, he could say of the Thessalonians, our gospel came not unto you in word only, and you became examples to all who hear of what that gospel did in your midst. So, my second major presupposition in all of these lectures beginning with this matter of the call to the ministry, all the way through to the practical matters of ordering the worship of the church, etc. There is this presupposition of the vital place of biblical church order as the supportive context of effective preaching. Then I hasten on to presupposition three. It is the conviction that a life of vital godliness is the indispensable prerequisite of all ministerial efficiency. The conviction that a life of vital godliness is the indispensable prerequisite of all ministerial efficiency. It is an old and oft-repeated saying, and it is old and oft-repeated because it's true that a man's life is the life of his ministry. As it will be demonstrated in specific details, there is no aspect of pastoral duty which does not have its roots in the state of the pastor's own inner life 
before God. Proverbs 4.23 is true. Above all that you guard, guard your heart, for out of it are the issues of life. Every stream flowing out of a man into the various dimensions of ministerial labor is traced back to the state of his heart. Hence, right on the threshold, the first requisite of anyone who has any sanctified aspiration for the office of overseer, what is the fundamental requirement? Blameless, blameless, a blameless life. And here again I found the old writers outstrip contemporary writers in their constant emphasis of this fundamental that I'm calling presupposition with which I'm working throughout the entire course. These words of Stalker in his marvelous work called The Preacher and His Models capture it. I gave you one quote that I'm not going to read. This is the second of the quotes. We are so constituted, and see if this doesn't answer to your own experience, brethren. We are so constituted that what we hear depends very much for its effect on how we are disposed to him who speaks. The regular hearers of a minister gradually form in their minds almost unawares an image of what he is, into which they put everything which they themselves remember about him, and everything which they've heard of his record. And when he rises on Sunday in the pulpit, it is not the man visible there at the moment that they listen to, but this image which stands behind him and determines the precise weight and effect of every sentence that he utters. Isn't that true to your experience? You cannot... It is psychologically, morally, spiritually impossible to simply isolate and cocoonize the words and separate them from the instrument that conveys the words. God didn't make us that way. God doesn't intend we should be and function that way. And so because of this, this is a foundational presupposition. It'll come through Some would say ad nauseum. Well, it does in the old writers, and I stand or hide under their skirts and seek to echo those sentiments. It was said of an old divine, quote, He fed you with his doctrine and edified you by his example. He wooed for Christ in his preaching, and he allured you to Christ by his walking. Wouldn't it be wonderful? Go to our graves and have people to be able to say in truth, he fed you with his doctrine and edified you by his example. He wooed for Christ in his preaching and allured you to Christ by his walking. Well, then we come to the fourth presupposition, and it is this. And this is crucial, brethren, and I wrestled for years until I got released by this principle. And so it's very precious to me personally, and I believe It is rooted in one of the most fundamental strands of biblical revelation. That there is a constant and delicate confluence and interaction of the divine and the human elements in every aspect of the work of the ministry. A constant and delicate confluence. When you have the confluence of two rivers, they come together, they merge, they flow together. There is a confluence and interaction of the divine and the human element in every aspect of the work of the ministry. John Newton is known for his terse words, quote, Only the God that made the world can make a minister of the gospel. And there's a sense in which that is absolutely true. It is Paul who speaks of God who makes us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, 2 Corinthians 3, 6. Who's sufficient? We are sufficient. How are we sufficient? God has made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant. Yet, yet, this same Paul is the one who says the following things to his son in the faith, Timothy. 1 Timothy 4 and verse 12. 
Let no man think light of you because of your youthfulness, but be an example to them that believe in word, in manner of life, in love, in faith, in purity, till I come. You pay close attention to the reading, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift that is in you. Now notice, which was given you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. There were unusual, supernatural elements attending Timothy being gifted for his task. Gift. It is gift. It is divine donation. It is of God. But don't you neglect it. You have a responsibility. There's to be a confluence of God's stewardship over his gift to you and your stewardship over that gift. 2 Timothy 1 in verse 6. For which cause I put you in remembrance that you stir up or stir into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us not a spirit of fearfulness but of power and of love and of discipline. God gave. But with the thing God gave, Timothy, you're to take the poker of conscious effort and diligence and stir it into flame. Chapter 2 and verse 15. Give diligence, the imperative of spudazzo, one of those words that sounds like it is. Give diligence to present yourself approved unto God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed. Don't float upon some expectation of the divine influence to make you this kind of a workman. You bend all of your faculties and all of your powers. And then I love 2 Timothy 2.7. Paul has given these various metaphors of the work of the ministry And then he says to Timothy in verse 7, Consider what I say. Bend your mental faculties in a concentrated way upon what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in all things. Well, does the Lord give me understanding, or do I give myself understanding? You think the Lord will give. And so you pray, Oh God, your Spirit has been given to instruct me, to give me insight into the truth of the words of Scripture. But now, Lord, give me grace to take all of my mental faculties and powers and sweat as I seek to understand them. Consider what I say, and the Lord will give you understanding. Now, it's my persuasion that every one of us, by nature, by temperament, by previous and present relationships and influences, are either going to tend naturally toward a kind of overly mystical approach to the work of the ministry and pray for things that we ought to be consciously pursuing or we'll be overly practical and say, well, we've got to be practical. Yes, we know God must do this, but we've got to do this and to neglect the conscious, constant awareness of our utter dependence upon the working of God. And this is why, if I had to say what watershed text has been more helpful than any other in establishing a theology of the Christian life, I'd have to say probably Philippians 2, 12 and 13. So then, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Engage your whole being in the most concentrated, sober, and serious way to this business of working out your salvation in an ongoing life of obedience to the revealed will of God. For, here's your incentive to do so, it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God's working and my working are confluent realities, the constant interaction. He does not work without us or against us, but with us and in us. So that his working comes to light in the blessing upon my working. And my working is blessed as he works in me to will and to work for his good pleasure. You say, that all sounds like verbal gobbledygook. Well, it may sound like it, but that's Bible. That's the reality. And that is a fundamental presupposition that breathes through 
these lectures. And then, very quickly, presupposition number five, the necessity of subjecting this field of Christian endeavor to specific critical analysis and structured presentation. There is a necessity. While it's true that much can be learned by example, by picking up bits and pieces here and there, if we have an observant eye, I'm presupposing that this subject of pastoral theology ought not to be left to any less focused analysis and structured presentation than any other theological discipline. It's the only reason I could with good conscience amidst the pressures of constant pastoral responsibilities over the years throw myself into the kind of reading and thinking that was necessary to structure and compose these lectures in the first place. And here I underscore again Murphy's words found on pages 23 and 24 of his pastoral theology in which he builds, I think, an unanswerable case for subjecting this field of Christian endeavor, namely pastoral theology, to critical analysis and structured presentation. Now you have a brief summary Uh, If God spares me, spares us, keeps our nation from imploding from the pressure of its own wickedness, and we're privileged to have these uh, sessions, these modules, eventually I would like to cover uh, at least the first five and possibly six units, the call of the man of God to the pastoral office, the life of the man of God in the pastoral office, the preaching ministry of the man of God in the pastoral office, the work of oversight, government, and shepherding by the man of God in the pastoral office, the intercessory prayer ministry of the man of God in the pastoral office, and then a catch-all for some important things that didn't fit in any of the other categories. And then we've already indicated the structure of the sessions in this module, I will give an uninterrupted 50-minute lecture, which I have done and which I must now bring to a close. And then, as you have questions, jot them down. And in the afternoon sessions, after our third lecture, uh, we'll have a time to interact together. Well, let's pray and ask God to bless the things we've covered thus far and continue his help to us. Our Father, we thank you for deepening our conviction of the vital nature of the things that we are wrestling with in these sessions together. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would continue to attend our mutual efforts to understand your mind more clearly, more comprehensively. And then we pray that with added light may be given added grace, that we may be obedient to that light. We pray now your blessing upon us in our time of interaction together. Receive our praise for your help and your presence as we offer it through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.